Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to LawPod. My name is Rhys Simpson. I'm an undergraduate law student at Queen's University and today's LawPod session focuses on stop and search powers in Northern Ireland. I'm very grateful to say that I'm joined by Dr John Topping, who I'm now going to hand over to introduce himself. Hi, and thank you for having me on LawPod. Um, my name is John Topping. I'm a lecturer in criminology in the School of Social Sciences, Education and Social Work. And I'm also a fellow at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice. Um, outside the, the day job, uh, and I suppose uh, partially related to some of this, I'm also chairperson of Community Restorative Justice Ireland. And I sit on the executive committee of the Northern Ireland Association for the Care and Resettlement of Offenders and also uh, the rights-based organisation on the executive committee on the Committee on the Administration of Justice. Ireland. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to start this conversation by looking at a quote from Professor Geraldine Van Buren, Commissioner at Equality and Human Rights Commission, um, who stated that in seeking to protect the rights of the majority, the police at times have to infringe certain rights of individuals, such as the right to privacy or freedom of movement. And her conclusion was that such infringements were acceptable provided three criteria were met. That is that the infringement was rational, proportionate and lawful. And so in looking at stop and search powers in Northern Ireland, in broad terms, what is the rationale for granting police stop and search powers and how can this counterbalance the rights of the individual? Well, I suppose the, the quote there from, from the commissioner, that's very sort of classic Rawlsian perspective, you know, this utility utilitarian idea that some small minority of people must give up their rights for the majority. I suppose before we get to stop and search specifically in Northern Ireland, I think this idea of dealing with marginal populations is something we can uh, have a look at. And actually, when you look at that in relation to stop and search, uh, this is by no means a new part. In fact, has an extraordinarily long pedigree. If we uh, go back as far back as the uh, Great Plague of the 14th century, that wiped out about 150 million uh, people across Europe. Um, and at the time, what happened, we started to see the shift in state power uh, for people essentially in the aftermath of the Great Plague who were classified as vagrants and valiant beggars. Their freedoms were, were essentially curtailed and they were pushed into the services of the middle and the upper class really about concerns related to economic efficiency um, at the time or people today we might call socioeconomically marginal. If we then skip forward a little bit uh, in this idea of controlling certain people by the state, actually through Henry VIII, there was actually passed the Punishment of Sturdy Vagabonds and Beggars Act uh, of 1536. And again, this idea people who are detached from normal social structures should somehow be reined in and controlled. Uh, and then, of course, if we skip forward a little bit um, into the 18th century, we've had, of course, uh, Henry Fielding, the, the Westminster Westminster Magistrate. He wrote his inquiry into the cause of the late increase in robberies. That was in 1751. And again, very common themes that we get nowadays about uh, relations between uh, poverty, crime, 
moral uh, moral breakdown. And then, of course, uh, moving into more modern times, and I suppose the, the, the modern era of policing, 1829, of course, we had Robert Peel. And again, he was about this idea of regular patrolling uh, and that, again, the, the very language of modern stop and search, that the patrolling police constable would deter thieves and apprehend any individual about whom he had reasonable suspicion. Uh, and that, I think, is the key term in modern modern times, reasonable suspicion. Um, this idea that, that the police organisation have some sort of reasonable suspicion that somebody has committed or is about to commit or is in possession of some sort of prohibited uh, items or weapon or, I suppose, in modern in terms of modern concerns, uh, drugs. But I think that point of proportional use, that point of justified use, um, that has never particularly, if at all, been the case with regard to stop and search. Even um, you know going back to the Vagrancy Act of 1824, um, that was essentially the basis. Uh, you know, a, a law formed in the 19th century that was the basis of the Brixton riots. The the very infamous Sus laws, a stop under suspicion laws, um, was certainly seminal in in really destroying relationships and heightening tension uh, between the Metropolitan Police at the time and, of course, sort of the black black community at the time. Afro-Caribbean community at the time in London uh, and really this idea that disproportionality targeting particularly of minorities from socioeconomic backgrounds as I don't think ever um, you know uh, it's ever been uh, anything but uh, and if we move forward into very modern times you know even debates in the last 30 years in England and Wales um, this idea of disproportional targeting of people from black minority ethnic communities has absolutely persisted um, you know on both uh, normal stop and search type powers, but also in relation to terrorist uh, powers as well, which we've seen more recently. Um, it's clear, evidently, then the rationale uh, behind such powers goes back in history a lot further than at least I certainly um, would with it. In terms of the key legal tests or pieces of legislation, what is it that makes this legal or justifies um, stop and search powers in Northern Ireland? Okay, so I think we're, we're going to concentrate here on what we might term normal or everyday stop and search powers, because of course the, the terrorist related stop and search powers are a very different set of, it's a very different legal regime. But I suppose concentrating on these powers, I suppose um, seminally we had in, uh, in 1984, we had the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, which came into being in England and Wales. And then five years later, we had the Police and Criminal Evidence Northern Ireland Order of 1989. And essentially that lay down the test of reasonable suspicion. And essentially reasonable suspicion is um, I, I, I sometimes misunderstood. Reasonable suspicion is in fact a legal test which must be satisfi satisfied every single time when this power to stop and search is invoked. Um, you know, that has to be based on intelligence. It has to be based on particular circumstances. There has to be a reason. It can't be done on stereotyping. It can't be done on prejudice. It can't be done on preconceived ideas about particular sections of society. Can't even, can't even be done uh, in terms of people who have a prior criminal record or even known to the police. So it has to be objective uh, information. And I suppose the best way to test that, is, as they do uh, more recently, or have done more recently in England right. and Wales, but is whether the way. object of the stop and search actually matches the outcome. So uh, if I have reasonable suspicion that you're carrying a knife, uh, if I 
find that knife, then those two issues match up. If I don't, then perhaps is this issue of reasonable suspicion? Is it, uh, you know, was it based on sound uh, grounds? And I think where we have seen some issues in and around that, particularly in 2013 for England and Wales, at least, what was then Her Majesty's Inspector, Inspector of Constabulary, found that almost 30% uh, of all stop and searches did not meet the legal threshold to engage stop and search. Um, and, you know, when you look at that in terms of Northern Ireland, we don't have those particular sets of information to be able to delve into that for the Police Service of Northern Ireland, for PSNI. But the, the other way we can look at that is through the, the very blunt, I suppose, measure of arrest rates. Um, you know, if reasonable suspicion by giving it a large margin of appreciation uh, was accurate, you would expect there to be quite a high number of people arrested when a stop and search is actually engaged. Um, in England Wales at present, uh, only 17% of all stop and searches actually result in an arrest. So again, does the ob object meet the outcome? Uh, do they match up? But for Northern Ireland specifically, and for 2017-18, only 7% of all stop and searches actually result in an arrest. Or in other terms, 93 out of every 100 stop and searches does not result in any further action. So again, that would raise issues related to reasonable suspicion. How is that formed uh, organisationally? What's the culture around that? What about in the minds of the officers? How is that formed? Are there particular different cultural um, values within different sections of PSNI. I'm not too sure and I certainly can answer that because the evidence doesn't exist. But uh, this idea of reasonable suspicion, it's quite a flexible, it's quite a fluid test. But I think it goes back to the idea, uh, as you talked about at the start, you know, the, the usual suspects, I think, is a, is a term well used. And what we do know from the wider evidence that the majority of stop and search falls on stereotypically socioeconomically deprived young males and also uh, particularly people from black minority ethnic communities. So uh, overall, uh, how stop and search uh, is being used in terms of reasonable suspicion has always been subject to question. Uh, and uh, I think it does raise issues for the, the, the approach that, that police take both here and in England and Wales. Is there any other ways then that we could um, approach stop and search and who is stop and uh, stopped and search in Northern Ireland? Yeah, well, I think one of the ways, I mean, arrest rates are a very blunt measure of, of looking at how successful they are, because, of course, when you look down the line, arrest rates don't actually encompass the crime figures on down in terms of clearance and, and clear up rates. So they're probably actually an inflation of how successful stop and search uh, stop and search really is. Uh, I suppose that the, the other way to look, to look at this is uh, we don't, of course, uh, have the capacity, nor do we fall around individual officers as, as criminologists every are of every shift of every day to be able to understand the decision-making processes. That is, you know, based on their training, it's based on their experience, uh, and it's almost impossible to legally question. But again, when it's when you start to piece together the wider patterns of stop and search usage, I think that is the aggregate way in which we can begin to see how well it's being used and also who it's being targeted against. And I think what I can uh, draw your attention to are, are the findings from the most recent Young Life and Time survey. That's through ARC and the, the, the Northern Ireland Life and Time survey. Uh, and that chimes very closely with wider research uh, which has existed in Scotland uh, and in England and Wales for close to three decades. There, we have long understood that... Um, 
Stop and Search is, as I've said, used against socioeconomically deprived young males in the main and also in England and Wales specifically the race issue. Uh, in Northern Ireland, that evidence has actually been markedly lacking for the last uh, 20 years, almost uh, for the entirety of the lifespan of PSNI. But the Young Life and Time survey has for the first time ever in PSNI's history given us a window into who exactly is being targeted. Uh, and just to give you a bit of context around uh, who and how and the extent of stop and search targeting, I suppose it's useful to delve into some comparison because I talked earlier on about PACE, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act and the, the equivalent Northern Ireland Order of 1989. Uh, that is almost identical, almost precisely identical to England and Wales. Also, we have, the, again, the mirror legislation of the Misuse of Drugs Act of 1971. Uh, and those are, are two uh, almost identical pieces of legislation. So that allows us to look at some comparison in terms of volume of use and in terms of effectiveness. And what we actually have seen in the last uh, five years, particularly in England and Wales and, and also uh, Scotland, which you'll talk about, uh, since really the, the time uh, when Theresa May was Home Secretary, there was a renewed focus on this idea of the effectiveness of stop and search. And really from them, we have seen very steep declines in the last five years of the use of stop and search in England and Wales. And that's reduced from, I think, a, a peak of about 1.2 million uh, back in 2000. Um, 2010, 11, 12, and that's dropped down for 2016 to about 303,000 for England and Wales. So that means at present they're stopping and searching uh, the population at a rate of five per thousand of population. What we've actually seen in Northern Ireland um, over the last 10 years, from 2004 5 through to 15 16, uh, for example, the use of everyday stop and search, these Misuse of Drugs Act and these Police and Criminal Evidence uh, Northern Ireland Order powers, they have actually increased by 74%. Okay, so uh, any police power, uh, of course, which increases by such an amount, you imagine there may be more attention and scrutiny uh, on that. But suffice to say, uh, that has been the picture. So, very much we, we have been an outlier, and particularly in Scotland as well over the last five years the groundbreaking research of Kath Murray uh, she did there and identified very high levels of stop and search use uh, again particularly against children uh, and young people of course Scotland has a, has a different legal regime so when you bring that back uh, in terms of the how much question we're actually doing stop and search in Northern Ireland at a significantly higher rate than England and Wales as I said England and Wales at present stop and search for these ordinary powers at five per thousand of population for PSA and I, that actually runs at about 13 per thousand specifically for these normal powers. Uh, and that's again more than Police Scotland, which is nine per thousand. And again, the other difference we can see is at a 17% arrest rate for England and Wales. Uh, and for this year, a 7% arrest rate. That was six last year. So it has, of course, climbed, um, climbed slightly. So we're doing it more than the rest of the UK with less success. And that brings me back to the Young Life and Time survey, because very similar, in a very similar and familiar way to England and Wales and Scotland, we have for the first time through this research understood that it is a young working class male issue here. Uh, the, the findings very clearly state and show us that if you are a young male living in a socioeconomically deprived area, your urban area, you're two and a half times more likely to be stopped and searched 
for no other reason than living in a socioeconomically urban deprived area. So I think that shows this idea of potential partiality to policing. The fact that you know that you go back to that classic policing, policing works best where it's needed least. Most policing does tend to be concentrated. It's not an issue here by any means. Most policing does tend to be concentrated in socioeconomically deprived areas. And we know that where there are more police, there are going to be more stops and searches. So that particularly is an issue. And the, the specifically looking at children as well, um, this has been uh, long uh, raised as an issue by various uh, NGOs and charitable organisations. For example, the, the Northern Ireland Commission, Commissioner for Children and Young People, through Include Youth, through the Institute for Conflict Research. There's been about a decade of research which shows us that children are particularly bearing the brunt of PSNI stop and search, uh, and particularly in terms of relationships with PSNI, that is having a net negative effect. And what we know from 2010-11 through to 2017-18, that approximately uh, the stop and search power of stop and search has been used approximately 33,000 times against children. So that's very significant. Um, uh, and w when you look at that, when you look at the the actual, what we might say, the, the, the further action rates, and again, PSNI figures around this are not particularly clear, but when an item is found against, uh, you know, when a per young person stopped and searched, only in about 5% of cases is any further action taken against that that, ch that child, the, the under 18. So uh, stop and search is being used significantly. It has been used significantly, uh, and yet it has very little outcome. So when you, when you put that together with the fact it is being concentrated, and of course, stop and search by its legal basis is not an evenly spread power. It has to have a justification every time. It does add up to and leads to questions about why the power, first of all, is being used so significantly against children. It also raises a question as to why, after a decade of general research showing this to be an issue, why nobody seems to be paying attention to it. And also the third key point in and around that is what are, not, not just the, the issue of the effectiveness of stop and search, but what about the effects? What are the effects on these young people in these areas who are, systematically stopped and searched um, with so little success and outcome rate. The damaging relations, we know from all the social science, criminological research out there, that stop and search does have a damaging net negative effect on police community relations. So particularly for children and young people, and of course, Northern Ireland being uh, Northern Ireland, we can't, of course, forget recent history. So this idea of young people fusing this very real, practical experience, a negative experience of stop and search, as we have in lots of other uh, places across the UK, with more recent histories, uh, with cultures, with attitudinal issues to PSNI, you can start to see how that can create a bigger, uh, you know, a bigger barrier, if you like, and a more complex barrier to police community relations and this idea of policing with the community by PSNI. So it's, it's a complex picture, but ultimately I think it's a picture which has not commanded as much attention as it probably should have over the past decade. Well, based on those statistical trends you've identified and um, how Northern Ireland differs from the rest of the UK, um, how would you assess, I know you've hinted at it there, the implications of stop and search powers for a community or even for the police service in itself um, in relation to Northern Ireland and its history? 
Yeah, I mean, a very interesting, very complex question. Of course, we uh, we have that baseline of um, you know the recent history of Northern Ireland. You know, we're, PSNI is essentially um, you know almost eighteen years young, an eighteen years young organisation. Very much the story of policing in Northern Ireland has been based around two key issues, in my opinion. One is, of course, the police reform process. A lot of the political, social, policing capital has all been about getting policing right. You know, policing was always this idea. It was the last piece of the political jigsaw. And if policing could be gotten right, the other pieces of the jigsaw would be would fall into place. And that was very much the case for PSNI. So a lot of it has been about the reform. Policing has been about the reform narrative. Uh, and this idea of normalised policing, community policing, very much at the core of the patent reform process. Um, the other uh, side of the coin if you like, has been in relation to the, the, the very, you know, it's great that the, the terrorist threat is diminishing, um, as we have seen over the last number of years. It has been reducing quite significantly. But again, a lot of that narrative has been about moving away from uh, the security situation, the terrorist situation, and again, moving towards normal, normal policing. Somewhere in the middle, this idea of normal practice, I think, probably hasn't seen or been given the attention that it should precisely because normal policing, if you like, and I'm thinking about stop and search as a form of normal practice is really transmuted into this idea of, uh, well, it's normal, so therefore it must be good. Let's not particularly pay any attention to that. And I think we can see that uh, quite remarkably in the last decade of Northern Ireland Policing Board annual uh, annual uh, policing plans. Not once has stop and search been mentioned. Not once has the term stop and search come up in a decade of Policing Board uh, policing plans. So I think that says a lot about how much discretion, if you like, has been afforded to PSNI to use this power. Um, and when, when you look at it uh, dispassionately, uh, there, there's a great bit of research uh, for people listening by uh, Kath Murray and Dermot Harkin in British Journal of Criminology. And they were looking at Police Scotland and they have this very nice analogy of hot and cold political climates. Uh, and essentially, a hot political climate puts a lot of pressure around policing. There's a lot of attention, there's a lot of focus, uh, and people will uh, put pressure, downward pressure, to perhaps adjust and change practice, as we've seen very much in Police Scotland, where they have reduced stop and search very significantly. Again, the, 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 I suppose the corollary of that is a cold uh, policy, cold political climate, uh, where there isn't much political attention, there isn't much interest, there isn't much social, even press interest. And I think that's been the picture of, uh, really, the picture and the climate around stop and search in Northern Ireland. Nobody has particularly been paying attention to this everyday power. And I use that term everyday deliberately because, of course, we actually know a lot more about terrorist-related stop-and-search powers in Northern Ireland for a very, uh, you know, necessary reason that we have had to use and we have the persistent terrorist threat. Uh, and, and just to give you a bit of a context to that, in England and Wales, about 99.7% of all stops and searches are done under this normal everyday Misuse of Drugs Act and PACE legislation. In Northern Ireland, only about 70% of stop-and-search is done under 
um, this normal legislation with about a third, almost a third, done under terrorist legislation. That would be the Terrorism Act of 2000 and also the Northern Ireland Only Justice and Security Northern Ireland Act of 2007. Uh, we have a wealth of research, uh, particularly coming from the independent overseer of the JSA Justice and Security Act. And also uh, in the during the conflict, suppose the, the, the pre and post conflict periods of Northern Ireland, there has been a, a wealth of, of, uh, of research dedicated to the use of powers, these special powers, special measures, many of which are actually still, of course, used today in England or Wales or have taken on a new form. So I think, again, that has helped to, um, you know, shift the focus away from the everyday stop and search powers. And it's within that space, if you like, they have been allowed to flourish in this cold policy climate. So that there's that wider issue of accountability, of oversight. Why has this not been seen as an issue, uh, but also internally as well. And I know uh, when certainly the age-related statistics started to take hold in January of 2017, the detail TV um, was working through them. They ran a story on children and young people and stop and search. Um, you know, why for so long has this been seen as normal this, this sort of practice in in uh, within PSNI internally. What have the checks and balances been? I know PSNI said they do have uh, internal checks and balances in terms of how how much this power is being used. But again, you know, do some of those uh, contentions, you know, however notional, really help us to to and help PSNI to provide some sort of proportionality, justification checks and balances. Because when you, you look at the, the PSNI statistics around stop and search, and particularly across the districts, there is very little uh, to no correlation between uh, the levels of stop and search, the levels of crime, and also the, the arrest rates across those districts. Um, certainly looking at the, the stop and search um, figures for 2016-17 across PSNI districts, uh, in three of PSNI districts, the arrest rate was as low as 3%. Uh, in some districts, it climbed up to 10%. Uh, and also, we, we've seen very significant variations in the levels of stop and search uh, compared to the amount of crime. So again, that would suggest that culturally, perhaps within PSNI, that different areas, different sections, uh, perhaps different management structures have different or pay different sorts of attention to the use of stop and search. Uh, and I suppose it's that uh, analogy, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it within the organisation. Well, this power is working, it's a way in which we can deal with certain sorts of crime and certain sorts of people. Uh, and if nobody else is questioning it, why on earth would PSNI? Uh, that's certainly a picture we've seen in England and Wales for the last 30 years, and people have had to knock on those doors to make the police aware that this part is problematic. Well, in a cold policy climate, such as you described, as Northern Ireland, um, do you think the public is adequately aware of their rights when it comes to stop and search? Ah, a good question. Uh, are people really aware of their rights? Um, and again, it's this idea of which people, because of course, stop and search doesn't generally. And again, this is on the evidence that we know from the Young Life and Time Survey. And again, of course, this is specifically around um, around children. But what we do know is that stop and search is proportionately done far, far less in what we might describe as middle class, well off areas. Um, so that section of society doesn't generally experience stop and search. So almost it doesn't need to know, uh, those sorts of people don't need to know their rights because it, it really doesn't happen to them. So when you shift to 
um, uh, you know, socioeconomically deprived urban areas where it's happening two and a half times more. Uh, are those young people aware of their rights? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, what one of the one of the issues which is becoming clear, um, and certainly as we saw in that research from from the Young Life and Times survey, young people are aware that they can't be stopped without and without reason, some sort of reasonable cause. I mean, they were, they were very clear in that in the research. Uh, but at the same time, about fifty to sixty percent of them actually thought that just merely looking suspicious was a reasonable cause. So young people self-identifying as suspicious by virtue of being out in public space. Um, And then again, at that point of interaction, uh, there is no systematic training uh, or awareness out there which tells young people what could or should happen. Uh, For example... Uh, we have in England and Wales, there's, there's a great organisation, again, for people listening, you, you can look at them up on the website called Stopwatch. They're a, they're a charitable NGO type organisation who provides some you know, monitoring around the use of stop and search in England and Wales. A subsidiary programme they have is called Why Stop? Uh, and essentially that Why Stop programme is about raising awareness. It's about providing training for mainly young people who are subject to stop and search. What should you do? What are your rights? Does this officer has the power? What should happen to you? Um, and again, what one of the big significant issues we saw coming out of the Young Life and Times survey is that young people, when the stop and search is actually happening, clearly they weren't aware of the boundaries of what PSNI should be doing. In terms of process uh, in terms on young people's awareness, what we found was that 69% of people in, in the survey had been given no clear reason for being stopped and searched. So again, invoking the question of reasonable suspicion. Is being reasonable suspicion actually being used? Um, we also found that, um, and very significantly, an 88% of direct stop and search experiences, officers fail to provide identifying details. Officers absolutely have to provide identifying. That should be 100%. And in 90% of cases, Young people, 16-year-olds, part of the survey, said that officers did not record details on an electronic device and no receipt or record was provided to them. That is very significant because what that points to is the fact that stop and search is happening much more than is being recorded. And when it's not being recorded, PSNI cannot be held accountable. And when there's no accountability mechanism, then young people have nothing to work from. Uh, You know, there's already a low level of awareness of the police ombudsman in Northern Ireland in terms of their role and what they can do. So almost that this power is being used in certain areas with impunity. Uh, And when you take that a little bit further, we can look to stop and search and this idea of repeat stop and search, because, of course, if it's happening in a known area, There are a known group of young people. Uh, And again, the the, the Life and Times survey showed that a significant number of people, uh, young people, thought stop and search is being used as a form of harassment and it was was actually unnecessary. Um, Legally, if an officer is going to stop and search a young person, okay, whether or not they have grounds, uh, that's a subsidiary point. And if that young person perhaps is regularly stopped and searched or reasonably regularly. If that officer comes up to the young person and says, I'm going to do a stop and search, uh, and the young person says, yeah, get on with it, that then technically becomes a consensual stop and search. Therefore, the legal grounds for invoking PACE, or the Misuse of Drugs Act, 
aren't there and they don't need to be there. So therefore, uh, it's a it's a stop and search which happens without uh, any grounds and therefore it doesn't need to be recorded. So this all points to the fact that stop and search is in fact happening much more than is actually or officially being recorded by PSNI. And there's also the issue as well of the informal stop and search practice of stop an account, okay? Uh, and um, the only form and the only legal basis for stop an account in Northern Ireland is actually under the Justice and Security Act, uh, Northern Ireland Act of 2007, the terrorist-related le- legislation. Uh, there is no legal power for an officer to come up and ask anybody for you to stop you an account for your whereabouts account for what you're doing. Um, and I suppose taking the logic of that further, you know, legally they can't then find a reason to stop and search you just by virtue of you not cooperating with them when in fact there's no legal obligation for you to cooperate with them. So there's a complicating array of issues uh, in there about this idea of this asymmetrical power between the police and particularly between getting back to your original question, between people who aren't aware of their rights. They don't know what they should to do. They don't know what they should should expect. And I think that extends in the modern era as well to uh, social media and recording. Um, very clearly, PS and I have said in their internal, um, you know, in their internal publicly available internal memos that there is no general blanket restriction at all on you, anybody recording or video recording a stop and search account encounter. But what we see, and again, this is anecdotal and it is available on, uh, is available on YouTube. Um, you know, there, there are numerous accounts where officers are asking people, young people, it doesn't matter what age, uh, to lower their cameras, to stop recording for security reasons. There's no legal basis for that. And I think this, is, this, de- this sort of takes us into the era of social media and openness and transparency and accountability. Because I think, you know, when you look at it dispassionately, if an officer thought you were uh, video recording them for uh, some sort of terrorist purposes, I imagine they do much more than ask you just to lower your camera. Um, So, you know, again, this idea about how this power is seen, how it's used, um, how it's understood. I think in Northern Ireland, um, we are quite a way behind England and Wales, primarily because this previously, up until now, simply has not been seen as an issue. Well, even considering the social media context that you've just mentioned, um, and in more recent growing awareness of personal data, whether it was with Facebook or even, dare I say it, the dreaded word of GDPR um, that everyone seems to be talking about. Um, The lack of release of such evidence into numbers and accurate numbers of stop and search by the PSNI do people have a right to that information? Yeah, well, th- th- there's two different things going on there. First of all, are the public records of stop and search. Um, I mean, anybody can go onto PSNI's website and get stop and search figures, either by terrorist-related stop and search, uh, the numbers carried out. That, again, is broken down by district, by age. So th- there's a reasonable amount of information out there, um, uh, and you know, if the public want to, to have a look at it, you do need, in some regards, to know what you're looking for when you're on PSNI's website because it is a complex area. What does it mean? How does it compare to previous years? So that's the, the public outward-facing regime. Then also, um, if you are stopped and searched on a personal, individual level under ordinary, everyday legislation, you are entitled to a receipt 
or a record of that. Um, usually what happens and what should happen is that PSNI officers will um, enter that into their electronic device and then give you a reference number and then you're able to go and subsequently get a record of that uh, stop and search encounter. But of course, um, you know, some of the issues of monitoring um, leave a lot to be desired in Northern Ireland. Of course, we have issues of, you know, the, the orange and green issues never gone away. It never will probably go away in in, in the near future. Uh, we don't currently, PSNI currently don't collect that sort of section 75 data. They don't record whether somebody is Catholic or Protestant when they are doing stop and search. Um, you know, so, so that, uh, you know, raises an issue of equality uh, and who, where people are being stopped and searched. And that's in no shape or form suggesting PSNI are using the power disproportionately. But, um, you know, I think it's an issue which we need to grapple with. Uh, very logically, if PSNI are going to be running some operation in a particular area of North Belfast, which itself is highly segregated, uh, and they are in Area X, uh, which is a predominantly Protestant area, a predominantly Catholic area, of course there are going to be more instances of stop and search there uh, because of the segregated nature. Nothing to do with, with PSNI's uh, operations uh, necessarily. So I think that's a, a conversation which has yet to be had. I know it's something PSNI have looked in into with regard to terrorist-related stop and search. They ran a pilot down in Derry with regard to recording religion. That didn't at all uh, work or, um, you know, yield any useful uh, results. So uh, the, the idea of recording, I think, is something that we need to look at, and we're well behind. There are very, very sophisticated recording systems now in Police Scotland in terms of recording all sorts of detail, particularly around young people, around wider details, around repeat offences, you know, flagging up young people who are persistently coming under purview of the police. So uh, I think, you know, the monitoring, um, the quality of the information uh, is something which needs to be looked at. Again, I, in an ideal world, this is something the Northern Ireland Policing Board would be on top of. Of course, they are hobbled at the minute by the lack of political progress um, at Stormont. But hopefully once they get up and running again, uh, the issue of stop and search and, and what we're actually measuring uh, will start to rise up the agenda. And if a member of the public feels they have a legitimate grievance, um, are there any mechanisms available to them to seek legal redress? Uh, well, suppose the, the, the main port of call would be through the police ombudsman, the office of the police ombudsman for Northern Ireland. Um, interestingly, when we look to the police ombudsman figures, um, the amount of complaints around stop and search are low to negligible. Um, so uh, people, whether or not you know, outside the existing research that we know from young people specifically that they are seeing stop and search as a problem. Those people are not going to the ombudsman. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't problems with stop and search, but of course there's a very low awareness within young, within sort of the young people demographic, particularly children around who the police ombudsman were, awareness of their role, what they do, what they should do. But again, um, accountability. Uh, if taking the evidence from the Life and Time survey at face value if records are not being given. Um, I think, you know, there is that power dynamic who, uh, w what is the basis of that complaint if there is no uh, evidential trail there? And it certainly puts young people particularly in a relatively powerless position. And, and again, going back to your original uh 
point at the start around this idea of proportionality now, this sort of idea, this sort of Rawlsian you know, utility perspective, um, you know, do those rights for a lot of young people even exist at all when there's no way of actually, uh, you know, upholding these rights? Are these rights for some sections of society notional uh, rather than actually real or tangible? And I think, you know, that's bound up in the wider policing system here in Northern Ireland. Uh, and until we, I think we have more sophisticated, more robust recording of stop and search, I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of that issue uh, anytime soon. And, and would you consider the problems of a systematic nature within the police, as such as maybe a, a code of practice um, in terms of those areas you've discussed? Yeah, well, uh, what we have in Northern Ireland um, is uh, very similar to England and Wales. There's Code of Practice A for Northern Ireland. That is issued by the Department of Justice here. Uh, the most recent iteration of that was May of 2015. And that essentially sets out the framework, the guidelines for how stop and search should be used. Actually, in comparison to England and Wales, we're slightly ahead with our Code of Practice because within Code of Practice A, uh, it is inscribed the UN Convention on the rights of the child uh, and it does very specifically say that stop and search um, should be used essentially sparingly it should only be used in the best interests of the child um, and that if the powers are being used disproportionately uh, then the use of that power should be drawn into question so again are we at the stage where that power should be drawn into question? I would say, uh, I think reasonably we are. Uh, and not just uh, Code of Practice A, we also have PSNI's own Code of Ethics, which very clearly states that if any police powers are being used disproportionately, that must be justified. Um, can PSNI justify using this power more than anywhere else in the UK with less effect? Um, you know, it's certainly isn't fighting crime. Uh, you know, we know generally that stop and search does not fight crime. Uh, you know, uh, PSNI's website does say it's, uh, you know, it's there to prevent and detect crime. Um, the legal basis of ordinary stop and search is not preventative. It's technically an investigative tool. So uh, it doesn't deal with entire crime categories. We know from research from the College of Policing, for example, that PSNI doesn't deal with whole categories of crime or have any statistically significant effect, you know, in terms of violent crime, in terms of burglary, and, and of course some categories it has no effect, no relation, such as online crime and domestic abuse as well. I think the popular arguments come when you look at knife crime and drugs, uh, and I suppose the most recent example I can give you is in regard to, I suppose, the, the, suppose, you know, the, the upsurge in violent crime uh, and knife crime in England and Wales over the last couple of years. They actually brought in uh, a campaign, an operate, it was called Operation Blunt by the Metropolitan Police. Um, and I think that extended out to some other uh, constabularies as well. Uh, and what they actually found was that uh, increase of stop and search uh, in those target areas, in some cases had statistically no or a negligible effect on reducing knife crime. And in fact, knife crime reduced in some areas where Operation Blunt wasn't even in effect. So uh, that's, you know, the example there. So, you know, th there's a very big divide between evidence-based policy about whether stop and search works and policy-based evidence that it's a great political soundbite. Stop and search is a symbolic, visible, tangible form of policing being seen to be done on the streets to the usual suspects. And I think there's some reassurance role to that. And even if you pull that down to, and I think we can bring this in specifically to Northern Ireland, um, drugs are a perennial 
issue, not just here, all you know, countries throughout Europe. Um, and when you drill into PSNI's normal type crime, normal type stop and search, what we know is that of the ordinary stop and searches under PACE, under MDA, Misuse of Drugs Act, actually 70, almost 75%, three quarters of all everyday stop and searches are done under the Misuse of Drugs Act, 1971. So you take that fact, you take that with the, the targeting of urban socioeconomically deprived young males. And what we're seeing here in terms of the use of stop and search in Northern Ireland is a pattern in the main of stopping and searching young males for low level drug possession. Now, is that an effective use of resources? Because I think, you know, the, the, the other way to look at the, this um, is if you're repeatedly doing this in particular areas, okay, uh, and you're repeatedly, as PSNI statistics show us, not yielding very high or at all high uh, arrest rates, um, then that starts to create a damaging effect. It reduces information flows, actively works against community type policing and engagement. And it creates what we call a ratchet effect where relationships become soured, there's a distance, they become more confrontational by their nature. And then the only real way PS and I have to engage with those young people are through these sorts of powers. So uh, I think, you know, that is particularly an issue about why low level drug possession is a focus of, uh, you know, such a focus of, uh, of stop and search and why ultimately it yields such low results. Well, I suppose uh, in conclusion or in a brief summary, um, would you have any indication of possible solutions or ways forward um, in which the police service in Northern Ireland could uh, deal with the potential loopholes or negatives that you've identified? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big question. Um, I know certainly since January of last year when PSNI um, released the, for the first time, age-related figures into the public. And then I, I had run a conference last year as well involving PSNI and the Policing Board and Ombudsman and Criminal Justice Inspectorate. There seems to be more attention devoted to stop and search. I think in terms of Fixing it. I don't think there is any fix to stop and search. I think stop and search by its nature will always remain as this flexible power, which will ultimately, um, uh, you know, reflect the police power dynamics with certain sorts of people and certain sorts of communities. I think certainly what we do need, uh, and there's no short term fix of this, is a policing board to get back up. And running. We then also need much more attention focused on stop and search uh, to begin to unpick some of these issues more fully because in many regards, as, as I said before, we have much more detail and knowledge about terrorist-related stop and searches. So we need to shift some of that focus. Uh, also internally, PS and I need to begin to examine um, what is allowing or facilitating or enabling stop and search to be used to the extent that it is really reflecting not just uh, whether you know the how much question but also for themselves as an organization which pride themselves on policing with the community as a core of their service uh, is what they're doing in terms of stop and search damaging their ability to do policing with the community because again it's that that uh, balance of effect versus effectiveness if the effect of what your organisation is doing um, is outweighing, uh, you know, its ethos of policing of the community. If the effect of stop and search is having a net negative effect, as we know it does from all the evidence, then 
Should it not be reduced? Should we begin to use it less? Uh, because what we have seen in England and Wales, while stop and search is reduced dramatically, we have not seen any significant increases in crime. In fact, you know, when you look at Northern Ireland, um, you know, we actually have some of the lowest, I think, the, the lowest levels of crime on record last year, 98,000, the lowest since PSNI came into existence. There are much lower levels of being a victim of crime in Northern Ireland compared to England and Wales. Fear of crime is at about a 20-year low, according to the Northern Ireland Crime Survey. Um, so do then we really need to use stop and search? And, and for me, the other question related to that is perhaps stop and search a symptom of the diminishing resources of PSNI in terms of their ability to respond and be in the community because we know there have been some soundings recently that, you know, police, and there have been perennial soundings um, and research that policing the community, community policing is not necessarily working or effective in some areas. So if you, you, you tag that on to the idea of diminishing resources, PSNI officers on, a, on an individual personal level have less time and are expected to do more, is stop and search then a symptom of that because it's a, is it a quick fix for dealing with certain sorts of people and certain sorts of crime. You know, I can't answer that on behalf of PSNI. And I think, you know, upping, um, you know, some of the focus around the recording, looking, for example, to Police Scotland and their very sophisticated recording systems to stop and search, and also perhaps having some sort of independent advisory group as well, I don't think would go amiss to have not just, you know, general views around policing and young people, but actually a specific advisory group on stop and search to really get to the heart of what's happening, where it's happening, because we've got the evidence from the Life and Time survey, which is challenging for PSNI. So why not use that evidence uh, and turn that into organisational action which can help actually PSNI do their job better because nobody wants to be in a position where certain sections of society are in a confrontational uh, environment with PSNI because of certain sorts of, of policing practice. And I think, uh, as we've seen in England and Wales, just as a final point, stop and search is not an absolute necessity, crime-fighting necessity. It's an organisational practice which can be changed when the rules are tightened and loosened. And perhaps in Northern Ireland, we need to look to a little bit more rule tightening in order to reduce some of the wider problems that are starting to spill out and bubble out from the evidence that we know. Well, thanks very much. Um, that's definitely a thought-provoking and very informative uh, law pod session today. Um, one final quick question. If any of our viewers wanted to uh, independently look at the research which you've acquired, um, maybe you could give a heads up at where they could go to find that? Yep, there are a few different sources for anybody interested in following on, um, students or general public or, or anybody. In fact, you can go on to the ARC website. If you if you go on to Google, very simply put ARC and Young Life and Time Survey, you'll find the latest uh, survey results up there. And also for a more general overview, you can also go on to the Northern Ireland Assembly website and look up their KES Knowledge Exchange Seminar Series, where they'll also find a range of information, slides and policy briefs uh, I've written on Stop and Search also. Well, thanks again for uh, coming onto the show and giving up your time. We will put that information in the show notes as well um, for any of our listeners. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Rhys Simpson, Michael Sheeran, Richard Somerville and Rachel Killeen. Our theme music is by... Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. 
LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Dr. John Topping for today's episode. You can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you can get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Reece Simpson and this was LawPod.